0: All right, I want to talk about RBC and the uh, and the mission of God. I'm really excited about what God is doing at Richfield Baptist Church. I love what He's doing in our community. He's doing things in our church. He's doing things in other churches. It's wonderful to see. And as God grows the church family and grows our resources, we've been praying. We've been praying about how we can be the best stewards of that and what the Lord wants us to do. Um, how, do we, how do we handle the growth? I often think of growth in the church like a vine and a trellis. Um, the vine is the spiritual growth. None of us are responsible for spiritual growth. That work is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings people to faith. The Holy Spirit works in our lives. We grow spiritually. The trellis, to me, is like the ministry of the church. What are the programs? What's the building? You know, God grows the vine. We have responsibility, of course, to shape the trellis. And so we've been thinking about how do we shape the trellis. And so we're putting together a, a kind of a strategic planning team that's led by one of our elders here at RBC. And they're going to come back with ideas and recommendations. And so I thought I'd just take a few minutes to, uh, well, more than a few minutes, sorry, uh, talk about RBC and the mission of God and just encourage us about what God is doing and maybe give some principles and some ideas that I think should guide our hearts as we look forward. Uh, I want to talk about the Apostle Paul in a moment, but the, the, the problem is this. Here's the process. a problem for Paul, it's a problem for us. Adversity tends to put you in survival mode. Adversity makes you just want to sit still and not do anything. This is true in our personal lives. This is true when we're in a place like a church, where when you feel like the world is falling apart around you, whether it's the economy, whether it's COVID-19, all the political kind of climate and how that affects us, we think about... How do we just hold our ground? How do we just keep doors open? And so you're like a boat in the ocean that when it gets hit by the waves, the the captain and the crew, you don't think about where the island is you're sailing to. You just try to keep the boat afloat. That's what we tend to do when adversity hits. And what the Apostle Paul does here is he's in adversity, but he's still pushing forward. And he still has his eyes on a direction that God wants him to go. The whole world is in safety mode, but I want us at RBC, and I know we want this at RBC, we want to look forward to what God has for us, and we want to continue to say, Lord, how can we bring you the most glory? It's the winter of the year 57. The Apostle Paul is in a Greek city of Corinth as he writes this letter to the Romans. He has not yet been arrested, but that's about to happen. It's a season where he's going through a lot of challenges. He's always in economic problems. He finds himself under constant persecution, kind of like a lot in the early church. But the Apostle Paul tells the church at Rome, I am going all the way to Spain. Now you have to understand, Spain is the end of the world. Uh, Spain is the known world. It's as far as you could possibly go from Paul's perspective. And what I want you to see is the verbs in the passage tell a story. Look at the verbs. You have past, present, and future here. Past tense. He says, I have preached... I've strived. Those are past tense verbs. Paul is telling, hey, God has done all this for me in the past. And then he has some present tense things that God is doing. I, I have been hindered. I'm going to Jerusalem. Things like that. These are things that God is doing presently in his life. These, I would call these goals within reach right here. But then he has some long-term ambitions. Things like, I will come to you. I am going to Spain. And you find those in verses 28, 29, and again, you find it in verse 24. So Paul here is doing something that every ministry should do. He's mapping out the future. He's got short-term goals. He's got long-term goals. He's got economic strategies on how to get there. He's even thinking about, as I go to Spain, I'm going to have to have a halfway point to stop. Ah, the church at Rome, which is why you and I have a letter to the Romans. Because Paul is trying to, trying to get a landing pad for missions, not only to encourage them, but for the ministry in Spain, the future ministry in Spain. Some of these are close goals, and some of these are reach goals. And I want you to notice that when the Apostle Paul makes plans, he's not locking God in. He's not saying, oh, the Lord is definitely going to do this, and I know this for sure. He's confident God is going to do that, but he's pretty measured at the same time. He says things like verse 24, I hope to come and see you. That's good. And so Paul is making plans, but he's doing it in a way, well, he will certainly allow God to redirect. And that's what we want to do at RBC. We want to make plans. We want near goals. We want some reach goals. We want things that are way out there, like going to Spain. Not literally, although if God wants us to do that, we'll do it. But we also always want to say, I hope to do this, I hope to do that. Allowing God to redirect us along the way. So even in adversity, the Apostle Paul is looking forward to serving the Lord in some great ways. I would say at Ridgefield Baptist Church, it's, it's not time to punt. It's not time to go into safety mode. It's time to, to hear the voice of God and move forward. And I'm excited about what the Lord's doing. Let's sketch out some plans. Let's do that as a congregation. Let's remember that Noah sketched out the ark before he saw a drop of rain. You know, Let's sketch things out for the future. So as we sketch things out, here's a couple of principles that I think could really, really guide us as a church. We find these in Romans 15. Let me give you the first one. The first one is to be a gospel-centered ministry. You want to have a gospel-centered message. And that's what Paul says. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. This word ambition is a really cool word, by the way. It's made up of two Greek words. The word for love, one of the words for love and one of the words for money you know, or value. It's kind of a strange thing. And when you bring those together, it makes a strange Greek word that means something that I really love, something that I value, like an ambition. And Paul says, my ambition is this message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I just want us to know that Paul here is telling us that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's the gospel, that's that message of the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. Whatever we do as a congregation, this is, this is the guide. This is the guide, that the gospel is the main message. There's a lot of things that Paul could have done. He could have had a philosophical ministry. This would be very in line with the early Greek world. You know what the Greek philosophers would do? They would walk around and share philosophy. They'd actually get paid for doing that stuff. Just walk to a town, share some things, collect a little money, go to the next. The Jewish in the first century, they had what you might call a moralistic kind of ministry. And some of these are very good morals. They had different moralistic ideas that they wanted to communicate. The Greeks were very political. The Romans were very political. You could have all kinds of ministries, if you want to call them that philosophical, moralistic, political, the Apostle Paul says, my ambition is to preach the gospel. He wants to be a gospel-centered ministry. And I think that's important for us. And so we at Richfield Baptist Church, this is our message. The gospel is not a message. The gospel is the message of the church. And we want to understand all topics in light of the gospel. Um, there's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. Have you heard this before? He said, i i I believe in Christianity like the I believe the sun is risen not because I see it but also because by it I see everything else. That's 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 the gospel. See we believe the gospel not just because we see it but because we see everything else through it. And that means whether we're talking about work or marriage or family or hobbies or community whatever it is we're always asking the question, Lord, how does the gospel inform the, how does the gospel inform my 9 to 5? The gospel is the message. We want to find out how it informs things. Take something like politics. You want to talk about a hot debate in our culture. Tax policy, abortion policy, foreign policy, prison reform. There's all kinds of topics. As Christians, we're asking the question, how does the gospel inform what I should believe about this or that? And even when another Christian disagrees with you, you're still starting from the same platform. You're both asking the same question. How does the gospel, how should the gospel inform this? That's why with other Christians, when we disagree on policies like governmental policies and laws, that's why we listen carefully with humility when they speak and just shout over them because we're starting from the same platform, hopefully. We're saying, how does the gospel inform what we believe about family, marriage, taxes, whatever it may be, and therefore we believe that we can sharpen iron on those issues. So number one, Gospel-centered message. The gospel is not a message of the church. Paul says it's the message of the church. Second thing I want to say is we want to have a gospel-centered mission. Taking the gospel to needy spaces in very creative ways. Paul says in verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now that doesn't mean that everything you need to do you know, as a church, is do the gospel where Christ hasn't been named. Paul says, that is my ambition, and that happens to be Spain for the Apostle Paul, because the gospel hadn't gone that far yet in the ancient world. Paul certainly is not putting down people that have a different calling. There's a place in Galatians 2, where Paul and Peter give each other the right hand of fellowship. Remember this? And they agreed. You go to the circumcision, I go to the uncircumcision. They valued each other's ministries even though they were different. So Paul isn't saying that every church needs to do the same thing. By no means would the Apostle Paul say that. I certainly believe God's going to lead us in different ways. But what it should get us thinking about is where are the spiritual needy within our own reach? What do people around us believe? Where is the brokenness in a place like Ridgefield? Where is the brokenness in western Connecticut and in New York? And how do we reach out to people in these areas where the spiritual needs are so the message of the gospel can do its healing work? And I also just want to note that we should not be afraid to adjust our methods along the way. The gospel is the message, but the methods are going to change in a church. You have to remember that when the Apostle Paul went into a city, what did he do? You remember what he did? The very first thing he did, every single place he went, he did the same thing. He went immediately to the synagogue. And he would talk to people in the synagogue about Christ. And oftentimes he would find out if there were any believers there in the synagogue. And then they might form a small church. And by the way, if they outgrew a church, you know what they did? They'd actually go get commercial property. You find that in Acts 19. Acts 19. Where they outgrow a house church and they go and rent some commercial space. The point being, up to this point in Paul's life, he has done the same play in the playbook every time. You go into a city, you go to the synagogue, you find out who believes in Jesus, and the church is planted that way. There are small exceptions to this, like when he goes into the city of Philippi. But by and large, that is the play in the playbook. Here's the problem. There are no synagogues in Spain. And Paul knows there's no synagogues in Spain. This is like the edge of the earth there from where you are in Jerusalem. And so the apostle Paul knows the methods are going to have to change. He's taking the same Christ, the same Lord Jesus to people, but he's going to be doing it, or he thinks he's going to be doing it, in very creative ways. We have to not just be concerned about People, we need to be concerned about these people, these people right here, right? We have to think about our own community. What does our own community believe? Where's the brokenness in our own community? And let me tell you, I've lived in the north, I've lived in the south, some of you have lived out west. I, you know, when you live in New England, one of the things you learn real quick is this is what you can't do. You can't take how somebody does church out there and plug it into New England, right? That never works. This is a unique place. It's a wonderful place with wonderful people. It's unique. And we shouldn't be afraid to try to adjust to the needs of people right here in our own Jerusalem. Uh, So the gospel message is the same. The methods are going to change. Number three, probably the most important point I think I could make here, is gospel-centered priorities. Uh, I want to read the verse, then I want to give you a thought. This is going to, I think, apply to your businesses. It certainly applies to a ministry like RBC. Paul says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, let me just give you the flow of thought, just something to think about. Here's the flow of thought. The Roman church is curious why the apostle Paul has not come to visit them. They're wondering why. I mean, he's visited everybody else. Why can't you visit us? And they don't know why. Is it because we're one of the churches you didn't plant? Is it because there's something we believe that's putting you off? Is it because there's some politic going on? The Apostle Paul, the Romans are wondering, why hasn't Paul come to visit us? And Paul here is giving them an excuse why. It's not because he doesn't care. And it's not even because, as in the case of the Thessalonians, Satan hindered him. No, it's nothing like that. What does he say? Well, he says in verse 17. He says, I've been doing all these other things. Uh, He says, uh, in in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have reason to be proud of my work in God. He talks about doing things through the signs and wonders and through the power of the Spirit in these various cities. Verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. verse 21. I'm not going to build on someone else's ground. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is giving an explanation on why he hasn't visited them. And then in the next passage, he tells them why it's going to even be longer. They're going to have to wait even longer because there's a love offering that's got to make its way to Jerusalem. We're not there yet. The point to appreciate here is this. If you own a business, if you're an individual, if you're a church, you cannot be all things to all people you got to have a list of priorities. And the Apostle Paul had a clear list of priorities that God laid on his heart. Not saying he's going to lay this on everybody else's, but he did on Paul's. Number one, I always preach to those who have not heard the name of Christ. Then I visit those who know the name of Jesus. That was his burden. That was his passion. You can't be all things to all people. And what I'm trying to say here is this. If you, if we, are going to pursue the things that God wants us to pursue, we're going to have to be willing to say no to some really good things. And the Apostle Paul had to say no to some really good things, like visiting the Romans, who he loved to visit. But he realized that might not be all the way on the top of the priority list. This is something that churches have a really, really hard time with. If you've been in church for more than five minutes, you've already seen how hard this is. Because over the years, you accumulate a lot of things that you do. These are good things. They're not bad things. If I walk into a church and say, right on a whiteboard, all the things you guys do, I hope, I don't think I'm going to say, that's horrible. Look, that's horrible you're doing. No, nobody's going to, these are good things. That's the problem. What's best next? That's the question. Before I left South Carolina, and by the way, I'm from Hartford, Connecticut, graduated Eastern Connecticut. If just Since I've mentioned this, I'll give you the bio. Um, I, I lived in South Carolina for 17 years and came back to Connecticut eight years ago. I love serving God in New England. Um, definitely feel like hand in gloves, blessing. Before I left South Carolina, I wanted to interview some of the pastors in that area. Different churches did different things really well. Some of them were really good at messaging. Some did. One of them was really, really good at administration. Probably the best administrated church I've ever seen. And it was one of these big churches. They had like 11,000, 12,000 members. So I called a pastor and I said, let me, let me sit down with you before I leave. I know I'm just on a friend basis. And I went over and sat in his office and I said, I'm going to interview. I said, you could be the best well-run ministry you know, that I know. I said, how do you guys stay so on task? And his answer hit me like a lightning bolt. He said, let me tell you how we do this. He said, once a year, I bring the leadership into a a room and we write on a whiteboard every single ministry and thing that the church is doing right now. And then I look at the group and I say, nobody leaves this room until we kill four of these. (laughs) Nobody leaves until we kill four. Nobody leaves until we kill five. In other words... They're all good things. That's the problem. What's best next? A church has to lay out its priorities. Have to be able to say, given the hard no, right? The things that are really good. Maybe things we've been doing for a long time. Maybe things we just picked up. And you know, when, when, when we task the committee and the folks to think about this stuff and we're praying about this as a church, I think we need to have a degree of understanding That there are some no's that come to things that we love. I will also say, um, by the way, how do you know if you're doing this well? Do you know how you know if you're doing this well as a ministry? You find yourself apologizing a lot. That's just, that's what he's doing. Did you pick that up? Paul's like, they're like, why didn't you come see us? And he's like, well, I sort of had this going on and I had to do that. He's like falling all over himself. He spends a whole chapter explaining to them, you know, very carefully why he hasn't visited them. And it's, it's his way of saying, you're just not way up on my priority list. But you don't want to look at someone and go, you're just not way up on the priority list. You've got to put some flowery language around it, and that's what Paul does. We as a church should find ourselves apologizing. We should. When people come and say, I really want to do this ministry, we should say, oh boy, how do I say this carefully? That's not what, well, we love what you're doing. We want to pray for what you're doing. There's ways we can support it, but we just can't do that right now. You see, if you find yourself apologizing, you're probably more on the right track than not. I would also say we should dream big, dream big. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, you got to put this in perspective. This is a 20, a 2,100-mile trip for the Apostle Paul. You go 2,100 miles, that's not a big deal when you fly. You know that. 2,100 miles on foot. Dangerous. Good chance he's not going to make it. By the way, he didn't make it. We'll talk about that in a minute. You know, If you grew up in a, if you went through business school in the 90s, you know what the big, hairy, audacious goal, remember that book? Anybody? Big, hairy, audacious goal. You know, that's what we needed at RBC. That's what Paul had. Paul is not afraid to throw something out there that is, frankly, a real reach. And here's why. We shouldn't be afraid to dream big because even if we don't achieve that goal, God will use the incompleteness of our efforts. And that's what God does here. Paul doesn't make it to Spain, as far as we know. But you know what we have because Paul attempted to go to Spain? We have books like Philippians, Colossians, First and, and 1 uh, Timothy, Ephesians. We have the prison epistles there. There's lots of fruit. You know what happened because Paul wanted to go to Spain? He ended up in Caesar's palace, and he tells the Philippians that the whole palace knows about Christ because I'm in chains and I'm in prison here. God will use the incompleteness. God, You know what David did when he couldn't build a temple? He dreamed big. I want to build a temple. God didn't let him get there, but he handed it on to Solomon. And Moses wanted to get to the promised land. He's dreaming big. He doesn't get there. But man, he helps Joshua get there with the people. It's a great verse in Hebrews 11. All these died in faith, having not Receive the promises. I like that. You want to know why? Because if you don't receive the promises, you can still do it by faith. Knowing that eventually God always gets us there. I think we should dream big at RBC. I think we should throw these ideas out there and pursue them with our whole hearts. Number four, moving quickly, we're going to need gospel-centered partnerships. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey. By then, you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while, um, there's something about Americans, and I, being one, I can speak authoritatively on this. We we feel like we're just better off doing everything alone. We feel like we handle it's just easier. Let's be honest. You know, I can make my own decisions. I can do my own thing. One of the things that a church needs to do, we have to believe we're better together. We're better together as a congregation. And frankly, we're better together even partnering with other ministries that are going to be on mission with the gospel. And Paul does this on all his ministries, right? He picks up Timothy and Titus. Uh, he, Luke set off with him. Aquila and Priscilla. What's happening in Romans 15, we don't have time to look at it, he's making a plea to the Romans to help him on this mission's effort as he goes to Spain. And God never intended us to walk the road alone. He wants us to walk it together and with partners um, that, are, that, are, that, that, that can help us right here in our area, and we can encourage them. We're better together. I love that verse in uh, Ecclesiastes. You know this one? It says, um, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If one of them fall, the other will lift him up. And then at the end it says, a 3 cord, a threefold cord is not easily broken. I love it. a three. Did you know that was in the Bible? Yeah, everybody, when you hear things, you know, it's like, uh, to everything, turn, turn. People, they think the birds wrote that, you know. That's in the Bible. And, and a three cord, uh, three-fold cord is not easily broken. That's actually in the Bible, and it's a beautiful passage. If I was teaching children's church, you know what I would do, right? I'd come up here with a stick, and I'd have all the kids break the stick, and then I'd put three of them together and pass it around, and they wouldn't be able to break it. That's the picture Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes. We're better together. We're better as a church. We're better as we walk the road together. We have to reject this American kind of individualism. There's a lot of good things we get here. That's one of the things we kind of need to push back against and say, we don't want to walk this road alone. We want to be like Paul. We want to have ministry partners and friends that can encourage us and we can encourage them. Number five, gospel-centered mercy. We want to make sure we remember gospel-centered mercy. And this is where Paul puts as one of his priorities that, that the, the, the poor are people he's caring for along the way. For Macedonia and Achaia, they have been pleased to make, uh, make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So again, Paul says, I, I'm going to go to Spain, but I can't go to Spain just yet. Number one, I'm finishing my church plants here. Oh, and number two, I got to get that mercy love offering to the poor in Jerusalem. There's a lot going on in this text. Don't have time to look at it. I will say this. You know what the most important thing about this love offering to Jerusalem is? It's not just taking care of the poor, though that's really important. This is the Gentiles, the Greeks, giving a love offering to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And many believe that Paul saw this as a fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy when the Gentiles give money to Jerusalem. But the point being, this is Paul's way of telling the Gentile churches to stand in solidarity with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And when a Jewish people receive this offering, it's their way of saying, We're not suspicious of you anymore. <laughs> you know, you are our brothers and sisters. Um, the point to appreciate here is wherever Paul goes and whatever God calls him to do, he always has an eye for the poor. Always has an eye for the poor. He's always looking out for the poor. He's looking out for the marginalized and the oppressed and the hurting. That's what we need to do as a ministry too. Wherever we go, whatever God does through the ministry, part of it needs to be taking care of people that are struggling to take care for themselves. Again, remember that passage I said where Paul and Peter gave the right hand to fellowship. Do you remember? Anybody remember what Peter said to Paul just before they broke hands? I will go to the circumcision. You go to the uncircumcision. He looked in his eye, only remember the poor. And Paul said, I already intended to do that. <laughs> we have an eye for the poor. Think of it this way. If you and I were going to take a trip to Montreal, the board is open, and we're going to go up, and uh, we're going to take I-91 up, and let's say you have a newborn infant. Some of you can relate to. They have a newborn infant. When you have an infant, you have to stop a lot you are on constant lookout for restrooms and rest stops. You know Everybody else is going to buzz by them, but you're not. You know? Even if you don't stop there, you're like the baby sleeping, we're okay, you still know i got to make it at least 23 miles you know, for the next rest stop. On your trip, to, you didn't go you know, like 400 miles to visit a rest stop. You're going to Montreal, but you have an eye for these rest stops along the way. The main mission of Paul was not to take care of the poor. That would be a mistake to say that. His mission is to preach the gospel. But he is constantly looking to take care of the poor along the way. He always has an eye for the poor. I'm going to preach the gospel to the circumcision, you to the uncircumcision. Make sure we remember the poor along the way. This passage is a beautiful picture of that. Where Paul is on his way to Spain. But along the way... He's got to stop in Jerusalem to make sure he takes care of some people there. Last thought here. What can we do at RBC? Here's what I'm doing. Invite you along the way. Gospel-centered prayer. Verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me for your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul knows he's not going to get there unless people pray. I want to give you three ways to pray and close on this, okay? Number one, I want to invite you to pray earnestly. Pray earnestly for the church. Pray earnestly for your own heart. This is a beautiful word. See that, strive together? You know know what Greek word? You already know this word. That's why I'm telling you. That's from a Greek word, agonizomai. Do you hear the word in there, agony? That's where we get the English word, agony. In other words, Paul says, I want you to agonize in prayer for me. <laughs> We've said this before, prayer is hard work. If you're someone that prayer comes natural to, you just get on your knees and you opened your eyes and it's four hours later and you, wow, the time flew, you're an outlier. For most of us, prayer is tough. It's hard work. And Paul says, the same word by the, by the word in Colossians, he says, I want you to strive with me in prayer. Work really hard at it. Don't be afraid to put the hard work in. So we as a church want to do that. want to strive together in prayer. I want to invite you to pray. Pray for the church. Agonize in prayer. Take the time to do that. Number two, we want to pray in in faith. Pray in faith. Uh, Paul prays here. He goes on to pray, Lord, deliver me from the unbelievers that are trying to attack him as he tries to get to Rome and then Spain. Now, I told you before, the Apostle Paul, to the best of our knowledge, we can say with almost exact certainty, does not get to Spain, right? Is this, or did not get to Rome. Is this one of those times that we just kind of say, well, I I guess God didn't answer this prayer? Well, not so fast. Paul says, I'm going to come and see you on my way to Rome. He is going to come and see them, but he's going to come and see them in chains, as you may recall. And so God does answer this prayer. He does it in a very unusual way. And he actually does it in a way that causes Paul a lot of grief, but it actually makes his mission of the gospel much more successful. Again, the prison epistles are going to be written. He's going to end up in the palace of Caesar, being able to talk to high officials about this message of the gospel. God does answer this prayer, just not in the way Paul thought he would. And again, that's why we always leave that space for God to redirect and do things his way, because he knows best. And we also want to pray in unity. Pray in unity. Last part of verse 15. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Notice language here. Praying for Jerusalem. Praying for the saints. He wants to be with the Romans. That's three ways we can pray. Pray earnestly. Pray in faith. And we pray together in unity. So as we look forward, I'm really excited about what God's doing. I want everybody to be a part of it, as much of a part of it as you can be. And um, let us keep the mission of the gospel before us. I look forward to how God leads our steps. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for your grace and thank you for your love. Help us to be the kind of people you've redeemed us to be. We want to be people both of word and deed where we know Christ and we know where the spiritual needs are so they can be met. We meet those the best we can, but rely on the Holy Spirit to do that work. At the same time, along the way, we always have an eye for the poor, the hurting among us. There's so many people in our world, Lord, that are hurting, and I pray we would not be afraid to put our arms around people and take care of the needs the best we can. May we never be so busy about the Father's business that we forget people that are hurting around us. That is part of the Father's business. God, I just want to ask you to bless the committee and the strategic team as they meet. Give them wisdom. Give them insight. Lord, I pray that you would guide us every step. You tell us the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord how much more the steps of one of your churches? So we thank you for this time. As we sing together, help us to bring you glory. Give us joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord.